Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew and Jay. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode seven for season eight. This episode was recorded on Sunday, the 9th of September, 2018, and the episode is sponsored by object scripting and camera poses. I'm Drew Freeman, here with my calendar accelerating season eight co-host, Jay Strawn. Jay, it's good to talk to you again after calling me yesterday to say, are we recording? Yes, we're recording now. We did not record this yesterday. I just mixed that up. Good to be here and happy to have all of our guests with us. We have three. We've got a lot. I know, yeah. So let's get started in Introducing them. The first one is Matt Larson. He's a developer for scientific software visualization for desktop and augmented reality platforms. His experience has stretched from behind the lab bench to behind a screen. A more recent project was the visualization of terrain mapping of Saturn's moon Titan from the Cassini for a HoloLens application that was a finalist in the Unity HoloLens contest and a nominee for Microsoft's Reality Mixer Award. That is so cool. Hi, Matt. That's really impressive. Hi. Great, great to be here. Great to be here. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk about anything AR. Nice. Uh, Next, we have Jimmy Allen Parambil. He's a veteran of the game industry and has worked for companies like EA, Ubisoft, and Jam City. If you play video games, you've probably played something that he worked on. He's worked on Medal of Honor, Spyro, GoldenEye, CSI, Spartacus, Pets, Just Dance, and Rocksmith, with many more. Uh, More recently, he's worked on the well-received Unity AR Kit plugin, which has been used to create the vast majority of AR kit apps on the App Store. He currently works in the XR team at Unity, where he's helping to architect and develop the latest AR APIs. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Jay, and hi, Drew. Uh, Nice to be here. Thank you. I love pets. I used pets. I admit it. (laughs) Oh, me too. Yeah, that was, I was telling Jimmy earlier, that's the game that kind of got me into coding, because you could modify it to add new breeds of dogs. Yeah, the whole uh, setup of taking care of a pet, Mm -hmm. you know, without all the, the hassle and the the dirtiness always helps. <laughs> yeah, for real. We've also got Jonathan Ogle-Barrington here with us. He's the lead VR game developer at Wolf and Wood. Uh, he's the developer on A Chair in a Room, The Harbinger Trial, and The Exorcist Legion VR. Hi. Hi. Hi, Jonathan. It's really great to be here. This is an amazing, amazing group of talent here, and I don't know if there's really anybody who doesn't love the concepts of both VR and AR, and, and I know how Everybody seems to just think they're all lumped together, but they're so so oddly different worlds. While there is so much that is is connected between the two of them, and and Unity has lent so well to be a great platform for just developing more and more in in these arenas. I, I really want to thank all of you guys for being here. So. Where do we go? Where do we tackle first? I guess let's let's tackle VR first. And that that Jonathan, that's, that's going to be your your world, right? Yes, that's correct. So let's let's start first of all. Obviously, VR is we'll, we'll talk about AR later. And AR is attaching stuff to the world as we see it. And VR is just ditching the entire world and going whole hog. Um, and let's just get it out of the way once. It's, it's it's that Ready Player World Oasis environment. I've said it. It's done. We can move on from that. <laughs> Unless one of you guys has finished it and perfected. And I mean, so so give me an idea, first of all, the mindset going into developing for VR. So developing for VR is pretty much everything that you've learned about game development just twisted on its head. <laughs> There's just no, especially a couple of years ago when we first got started, when the Vive came out and the DK2 for the, from Oculus, there, there was no tutorials, there was no hard and fast rules on what to do. Everything was new. It was, it was really exciting times. If you wanted to do something in VR, it was very much experimental. There's there's no hard or fast rules on how to do something, how to pick items up off the floor. It was all very much, well, how do you think it should work? And I think it still is now, but it's so much fun developing for VR, being able to explore these new ways of interacting with virtual worlds, trying to make it as fun as possible and feel as realistic as possible. I remember when VR first came out, a major concern was, how are you going to orient the player in an environment? There's a lot of things you have to look out for. Like if you're moving, people can look down and if the legs aren't just right, they can get motion sickness or uh, just feel really taken out of the world. What are some things that you do stylistically and hardware wise to make these games immersive and uh, prevent 
motion sickness or any kind of weirdness that can come with that. Motion sickness obviously is one of the biggest problems you face as a VR developer. There's, I think, originally most of the time you'd go and see VR simulators or anything to do with VR, they'd be demoing a roller coaster simulator. Of course, roller coasters are the worst thing to ever develop in VR because they make you feel sick in reality. <laughs> so I think it's really difficult to avoid motion sickness even still, but there's a lot of work that can be done. As you mentioned about showing the whole body, not many people do these days because it is very disorientating looking down and seeing your legs doing something that your brain doesn't think you're doing, which leads to ketosis or motion sickness. Well, I mean, there, there's the general feeling that the inner ear fluid is supposed to be telling you how the body is moving yeah. and if what you are experiencing visually does not agree with that there's that collision of of, of input yeah so a lot a lot of the time yeah it's all because visual plays such an important part in vr it's really important to make sure firstly that you're going to be running at a decent frame rate a lot a lot of the problems due to motion sickness can be due to slowdown so running anything below 60 frames per second you know it it's not fast enough to trick your brain into thinking that this is what's really happening mm. another technique that's really useful and it's something we've employed quite heavily in the playstation port of our game game is what we call blinkers and that's basically putting a vignette around the entire screen when you're using something like free motion or free rotation something that i still can't get hold of i'm i'm very much a big fan of teleportation um and so are a lot of people so it's it's isn't that isn't that something that uh ubisoft used in their eagle flight or whatever something like that yes yeah that's correct and it's, it's something that it's really difficult to get right if you put too much vignette on, you're going to ruin the immersion and it's going to look a bit um, blackened out. Can you give me just a little uh, definition of vignette and how it applies here? Because it, vignette's one of those words that it, it, it feels like it's been sort of co-opted to explain something rather than where the original idea of vignettes come from. The vignette effect we're really talking about is is basically just closing the field of view slightly with almost like a black circle around the lenses. It basically just slows down what you can see and blurs out too much vision so that it allows your brain to work through everything and not get too confused by what it's seeing and what it makes you think you're doing. Yeah, I remember seeing a, a, a video recently talking about how ultra 8K video is kind of ridiculous due to the number of pixels that we take in, but then went to talk about how the, the visual center of the eyes really blurs a lot more to the side and the less that you have input at the far ends of your peripheral the less conflicting information it seems but I, I, I'm not sure if I'm explaining that clearly or not. Uh, yeah that that's um, about yeah the gist of it basically it's it, it reduces the amount of input that the brain has to process and therefore it allows the brain to feel like it's actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. One of the issues with VR, and I, I always think back, uh, I may be one of the few people who enjoyed the film Tomorrowland, which wasn't per se VR, but it's that concept of if I'm walking, I'm going to feel more natural if I'm the one walking, not necessarily pressing a button that says walk, but obviously we can't. And and as much as I love the idea of, of a, a two-dimensional or a three-dimensional treadmill, the idea of having that limited bounce, can you talk to me about how the best ways you've dealt with to compensate that concept of motion, of you providing the motion in the VR world? Yeah, so we, we actually have um, ported the Exodus Legion VR to the Omniverse, which is one of the omnidirectional treadmills. I'd like to say it makes you feel like a bit more immersed and it makes it feel more real. But in general, slipping around on black plastic with some funny shoes on <laughs> really doesn't do a lot for the experience, in my opinion. <laughs> and neither does other techniques that we've explored, such as arm swinging. So the idea behind that is you hold down a button, you swing your arms like you're walking. Again, it's still part of the whole tricking your brain into thinking you're doing something so the experience is re more real but yeah it, 
you know, I think there's still a long way to go before we find some sort of locomotion in VR that really feels like you're doing it properly. Obviously, stuff like Steam, Steam's uh, room scale where you can actually just walk around, you know, there you go. That That's the real experience. Yeah, I saw the work that the company that's actually working on the 3D, uh, the 2D treadmill that the prototype was used for the film uh, uh, Ready Player One. They, they, It's actually a device they've been working on. I've forgotten the name of the company in California. California. Their problem is that unlike us, where we walk and take the step, it needs to acknowledge that you're beginning to walk and then move and then realize you're stopping and then stops that you don't sort of jolt forward and roll back. The other thing I saw recently was somebody who is is watching the eyes for micro glances away and during the micro glances, they actually shift the perception of the room so you feel like you're walking in a very straight line, but you're actually walking in a small circle and you just don't realize it due to the fact that as you glance the room just shifts slightly so you you've got that perceptive shift wow. um I, I saw i saw matt throw his thumbs up like that you have you seen that that article as well <laughs> i didn't see that article but I, I heard about that recently i think that's maybe intel that was doing this um that's that's really fascinating stuff but i i guess because you know you, we we think about that whole concept of looking into the lenses and everything but not the the thing looking back at how we're looking at the world for focal points i guess mm. No, that does sound like it's something that could be useful in the future, I think. Yeah, I think Intel and I think Zinimers are working on a bit of eye-tracking software for VR, which would be quite handy to just know what the user's looking at. Yeah, I guess because, um, you know, with the, the standard eye dilation, if you've got something where it's bright in one area and dark in the other, it doesn't necessarily know if you're looking at the bright area or the dark area, where normally your eyes would compensate for that and either bring up the, the brightness or drop the brightness. So let's let, let's talk about, again, you, you, we, we sort of just covered it very, very lightly by saying it's everything you know about games and then turning it upside down on its head can you elaborate yes um so thank you i'm glad we can (laughs) (laughs) obviously the concept of game certainly 3d game development involves moving moving the play around with a stick and just (laughs) bashing a button to pick something up now that that's all well and good in a 3d game but if you think about the concept of having to allow the user to, to move around and interact with items there's a lot of rules that you need to follow such as do you place items on the floor and in most cases it's really isn't a good idea to place items on the floor so straight away you're get, you're you're getting into game development where you're not actually designing a room as it would look like a room you you're more designing a room that fits for VR uh, certainly if you're using Oculus or PlayStation VR picking anything up off the floor is a very difficult thing to do so if you've got a key key piece of information that you want the user to be able to interact with, placing it on the floor is not really going to be something useful. You're going to end up with somebody trying to pick it up five, ten times, losing tracking on the controllers. So so you, you really have to think about how how a person would actually go around picking things up or interacting. Again, um, using a door. It's not as easy as using a door in real life. You can't grab the handle and move back, especially if you're using teleport. So being able to open the door in virtual reality, you, ne- you, you need to think about, do we allow them just to touch the handle and then go through the door? Or do we want them to have to touch the handle and pull the door open while moving backwards or teleporting backwards? So there's a lot of different concepts that you need to be aware of even just designing the game before you get into motion sickness and optimization and so on. It's interesting because VR is admittedly, it's not new, but it's still relatively, I I guess one could say in its infancy, in as much as we think back to the transition from when GUIs came into being. We look into the the history of gaming, and there wasn't a huge dictionary of this works well in a game. Now you look at some of those games on your tablets for Android, iOS, and the like, there are certain conventions 
conventions that just every game follows. And it seems like we're in the early days of, well, what are the right conventions that work in a specific type of game? And we're still trying to figure out how do we do that interface? Is, is that what we're occurring? Am I accurate on that observation? Yes, absolutely. So it's definitely a time of almost like prototyping in the VR world when we haven't really hit VRs here and everybody knows how to develop for it and there's a hard hardened fast set of rules. It's very much if you want to pick up an item, should you crouch using a button? Should you point and have it magnetic, magnetically connect to your hand when you pull a trigger? So yeah, th- there's very much a stage at the moment in VR development of just prototyping different techniques for movement, interaction. As far as uh, the games on VR that are really successful, they've found kind of like a way to use uh, VR in such a way that it doesn't become, it's immersive and yet it doesn't become a, a drain on someone's, you know, like uh, senses. So something like uh, Beat Saber, even my, like, even my kids want to play that because everything is like you're standing still, but things are coming at you and you're trying to, you know, like um, and following the rhythm kind of genre, it kind of says, okay, this is how you would probably do uh, the rhythm genre in VR. So it's it seems like a lot of these games that are really being successful are the ones that are actually con- considering not necessarily uh, how to translate a game into VR, but more like mm-hmm. how does h- how does this experience in VR uh, make sense, you know, for someone who's actually trying to author experiences that way. I, I have to admit, I have a 12-year-old son who, uh, and, and a wife, and all of us really want to play Beat Saber really, really badly. <laughs> oh, my God. It, it, it's, a, it, it's like today's DDR. It just was unbelievable the first time I saw it. And I, I know I'm just going to sit there and put this thing on and, and be massively killed and destroyed, but it just... Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing uh, design of... It, in its own way, simplicity. Yes, I think that's one of the things, certainly if you look at the popular games in VR at the moment, they haven't tried to combat many of the VR problems, such as moving, locomotion, interacting. So Jimmy mentioned Beat Saber, and there's another similar game, such as Space Pirate Trainer. Again, they involve very stationary interactions uh, space pirate trainer just involves standing, shooting spaceships that come towards you, but they really get that interaction and immersiveness spot on. I have to wonder now, and I don't know if this is me being being jaded and the like, I'm wondering if VR is going to be a younger person's technology. And this is, this is me talking to somebody who's older because recently... My son and I had the chance to finally try a Vive that somebody had uh, put a little miniature world into. And of course, I, I suffered what I, I can only define as Vive shock, which is they put the thing on me and then somebody hands me the two controls, which of course in my world means these two controls suddenly float up in front of me, which is <laughs> jarring to say the least. But it was wonderful because uh, obviously a lot of these demonstrations that people have, they'll have a camera so that people outside can see what's going on. I couldn't walk very far because I was afraid I'd step on grass or bump into trees and my 12 year old would of course just walk anywhere it was like there was just that concept of yeah I can do whatever I want and I and I wonder <laughs> if there's that that mental process of I am so rooted in a reality that I've had for so long that it's going to be harder for me to buy into the into the virtual reality um I'm not, I'm not sure, to be honest, if it's going to be an old person, young person, middle-aged, or just across the whole demographic. I think certainly, I think the younger and more middle-aged generations are certainly the ones that are picking it up at the moment. Certainly middle, middle-aged middle with more disposable income, because obviously it's still an expensive hobby to have. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, headsets, five, six hundred pounds, computers, a couple of thousand pounds. You know, it, but I think certainly with the more headsets, coming out the cheaper the oculus go i think i think it's certainly going to be something that's accessible to everybody whether or not they want want to be involved or want to enjoy it i guess only time will see speaking of accessibility not all of i've used a couple and not all of them are exactly glasses friendly which is um weird and they can like give me headaches if it's too close to my glasses (laughs) yes i think that is one of the biggest problems Uh, i'm also a glasses wearer and i find Mm -hmm. very difficult on a daily basis having to be in the headset 90 percent of the time for development 
Um, I think the PlayStation VR is probably one of the most accessible for glasses wearers. Mm. And the Oculus Go, they actually have a special insert for people who wear glasses that can go inside the headset. So I think it's something that they are getting a bit more on board with. But again, it's still not fantastically comfortable having your glasses pressed up against your face as well as a heavy headset on as well. Yeah, no kidding. Maybe somebody's going to come up with some sort of, you know, prescription lenses that can be placed inside the headset at some point. That would be very nice. Well, there's another there's another offshoot business for you. So I, maybe I had this wrong. I thought that with the PlayStation you got the Vive, or is just the Vive another choice of VR headset? Yeah, so the Vive uh, is uh, HTC-developed product that works with Steam VR and the Steam platform, gaming platform. There's also the Oculus Rift. Uh, again, our Facebook company, the o- Oculus Rift is like the main desktop version, but there's an Oculus Go, which is like a standalone headset, which allows you to just pop the headset on, use a small controller, and really get into an immersive experience quite quickly and quite cheaply. There's also the Oculus slash Samsung Gear VR now. That's one of the earlier versions which involved placing your phone inside a bit like Google's Daydream. Cardboard. Yeah, or cardboard. Yeah, yeah, the original. So there's quite a lot of different options. And then, of course, there's the PlayStation VR. So that literally just connects to you. It's a headset. It connects up to your PlayStation via a little processing box, and you use either a DualShock 4 controller or some, I think they're called Magic Wands, or I'm not quite sure on the terminology. There are also, I think, the new, uh, like, standalone versions of VR, right? Like mobile VR, things like uh, Oculus Go. Uh, what was the other one? There's a Lenovo one, I think, and a, and a Google one. Uh, but essentially, it's essentially that just like the mobile VR, except um, you don't need a mobile phone. It's got the built-in like optics and everything in there. I was going to add in too. There's also the the Windows MR, which came out about last fall, which adds in about six third-party kind of hardware headsets from from just individual companies like HP, Dell. And for the VR headsets. So when you say that they're mobile and not just for mobile phones, uh, I know that a lot of them will have wires and then you're kind of tethered to your PC. Um, are there any, is the Oculus Go more wireless so that you can kind of maybe move around a little more or not trip over the wires? Yeah, so the Oculus Go is a, what, what we call standalone headset. So it's, it's a non-tethered headset. It's all contained in a headset and you use a small controller to control what you're seeing on screen. There's no need for wires or a mobile phone, even for the Oculus Go. The Samsung Gear VR, again, it's an untethered system, so you're free to walk around and it it gives you that little bit more freedom and it actually makes it feel a little bit more realistic than knowing that you're lumping around constrained by wires. And I believe the Google Daydream's the same. Let's talk about, you know, we, we mentioned it in passing, um, the VR capabilities in Unity, because you're saying that Unity is doing a lot. Understanding Unity in general, because it's just so powerful and there's so much. What kind of libraries or technologies are developing in Unity to make the VR development process easier? So Unity's a great platform just for stand game development, but where it really comes alive is the community that Unity has behind it. So in the beginning with Unity, the the VR frameworks available were, were quite small, but robust enough. And since then, we've seen a community develop around VRTK, uh, basically a package that can be used to really enhance what Unity's provided. But with the release of something uh, with Unity 2017, we've also seen real vast improvements on Unity's VR support. So we've seen the lightweight render pipeline, which means you can really get some great graphics effects out in VR, but also without having to worry about hitting the frame rates. We've also seen the unification of all mobile and desktop input for VR. So you can you can hit all platforms at once. Nice, that's convenient. Now, I, I'm guessing, having done minimal work in, in Unity, do you basically become the camera? Yes. So when when it's set up, 
you basically have a head and two hands. And the head is tracked by the sensors in the game, and that's relayed to the position of the headset. So where you're facing is the main camera, and then your hands are also tracked by the controllers. So it gives that feeling that your certainly your hands and your head are inside the game. There's very, very little in terms of full body sensors out on the market. There's a few suits and sensors that can allow you to appear fully in a game, but nothing that's really commercially available yet. I, I imagine that more and more immersive of tactile and pressure and everything else is still in development and will just go far further than it ever needs to go. Yeah, I think I think we're a long way away from Ready Player One at the moment. You know, that would be great when that gets there. We can have full body kinematics inside games and pressure sensors and I think we're quite a long way away. As somebody put it to uh, to me, it's like, so you can actually spend the money so you feel it when somebody needs you in the crotch. <laughs> it was just like, why? Why would you purchase that option? Yeah, that doesn't sound like something that would be nice. Unless you're a masochist. Uh, you make a movie, you need to add that. <laughs> well, well, okay. <laughs> Each to their own. All right, so just so I can uh, clarify there, because we talked about how Vive is attached to Steam and Oculus is attached to this. Is Unity stepping away from that in an abstraction kind of way so that you are using a specific library that can then be used with other things? Or with Unity, do you have to have basically a Steam library to attach to Unity or a PlayStation library to attach to Unity? How, How does that connection work? So currently the best way to get going really is to use Steam and Oculuses, like SDKs. So I believe you can build straight with Unity without them to get basic interaction support, locomotion, headset tracking. But if you want to really start using some of the more important features, yeah, installing the SDK into Unity, either from the Asset Store or by downloading them from Oculus, is the way forward. And then there's other packages available on the Asset Store. So there's almost like middleware engines, and we've touched on VRTK, so that allows... It has a built-in set of prefabs, really, that take care of locomotion, interactions, movement, climbing, and it packages them all up so you can quickly implement stuff without having to really get down into the nitty-gritty code of things. So it sounds like if this is a a direction somebody is looking to develop in, one, it's having a good grounding in Unity before that. It doesn't sound like you want to dive into Unity VR until you've got a good handle on developing in Unity in general. Am I right on that? Absolutely. And happily, there are lots of books. You can even go to to Ray Wenderlich's website, and he's got books on just understanding Unity. And then on that, it sounds like a good stepping stone is to have a good, strong Windows box, the Unity world, and it sounds like using uh, using Steam and, and the vibes pricing-wise, of course, you're still you're facing that. It sounds like you're you're facing about a twenty-five hundred to three thousand dollar outlay to get yourself really situated if this is a direction you're going. If you if you're starting from zero scratch, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, getting into VR development's not a cheap thing. There are cheaper ways, so you could start off with maybe something like mobile development. If you've got a Samsung phone, you could look at developing VR applications for the Samsung Gear VR. That cuts the price down quite a bit. You don't, wouldn't need the expensive computer and the headset normally comes bundled. I mean, I guess you, you could go all the way down to Google Cardboard, but that's probably a bit ridiculous. Yeah, you're obviously quite limited there with no with one basic sensor and no tracking. It's But again, if that's something you want to get started in, it's probably the cheapest way to get going. Sometimes you can get these uh, the bundles of Windows MR systems with a Windows desktop for in the range of 600 to 800. Um, so some of those could be a little bit lower cost ways, which are also compatible with the Steam VR. And of course, with a Windows system, you can always piecemeal upgrade to the pieces you need to really make the thing start to sing in the areas you need. If you need to up the processor, if you need to up the memory or the better graphic card, you know, you've got a more configurable system. Yeah. Which, you know, it just, it, to roll back on, it's one of the things about the Mac that has continued to 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 sort of hamper it there is that it doesn't have that upgradability to, to bring up one piece or another. And obviously the, the base system for VR development is an 
is like a 960, uh, an NVIDIA 960 or 970. They're, they're quite a cheap, attainable graphics card these days. So obviously you might struggle playing certain games on it, but for developing, you know, you don't have to go and shell out for one of the new NVIDIA RTX cards that have just been released for about $12,000, $2,000 or something. You could just go for an off-the-shelf 100 hundred dollar card. Unity has gotten such a great handle right now on 3D and now as a result, as you've said, VR, that it will be interesting to see what developments come out, both as we standardize on interfaces, as we write those dictionaries of usability, and I am looking forward to all the things that will come out to help support people who are doing VR development, especially in, in Unity. What we'll do is uh, we'll take a really quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to dive onto the other side of this reality wall and, and talk about Unity and its uses in AR. We'll be back in a, in a moment. Welcome back. In this half of the episode, we're going to switch from VR into AR. A- AR gets us back into, at least for my, my familiarity, the iOS world. Uh, especially with Apple's huge push with ARKit and everything else. So I, I know, Jimmy, you've been doing a lot in the ARKit world. Yeah, I mean, uh, so when, you, uh, when we talk about uh, AR, I think the most ubiquitous kind of example that you can find in, in modern times is ARKit. I mean, there was Vuforia beforehand that was kind of pretty popular. Um, and I have to say, I've worked with Vuforia before as well, and I've worked with uh, a bunch of other AR uh, SDKs, uh, but when I first saw ARKit working, um, it was like a, a a clap of thunder for me. You know, it just basically uh, all came together for me. It's like, okay, this this is what AR should be like. You know, uh, and the main aspect of it was basically uh, the stability and the and the believability of the virtual objects that were augmenting the real world um, that we saw with ARKit, even with 1.0. Um, and of course, Apple have already started working on uh, the 2.0 version of ARKit, which is coming out pretty shortly, uh, probably by Wednesday, I uh, hear. So basically, they're an ARKit 2.0 beta right now. Um, so it's supposed to be released uh, most probably with iOS 12, which is probably coming out uh, in a few days. By the time people listen to this, we will have the new I, the new OS is released. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the other part about this was um, Google Google with their AR Core, which came um, very uh, very close behind AR Kit. Uh, Google's approach was slightly different. Uh, they started off uh, using uh, a more hardware based solution, uh, which was Tango. And what that did was uh, we they used a depth camera on the Tangos uh, to help them to do the uh, the device tracking, the world tracking, and the um, and basically the feature mapping, etc., uh, much faster than with just uh, using mobile um, like the 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 mobile camera essentially. So uh, they came. They started with the Tango, but it turned out that there wasn't enough of a hardware support for those kind of things. So uh, they kind of saw ARKit coming out and they said, well, this is what we should do. So they basically went ahead and did very something that's um, very similar to what ARKit was doing, which was using uh, the camera and the sensors within the uh, device to kind of figure out where the camera was in the real world and also to kind of detect the uh, features and how it was moving throughout the world, essentially. So uh, in that sense, we kind of have very similar sets of um, AR uh, SDKs from both Google and Apple. Um, so in, uh, if we're looking at how Unity uh, looked at that, so uh, as I said before, uh, one of the first things that I did for Unity was um, implement the ARKit plugin for Unity, uh, which was uh, work, with, um, work with Apple basically to uh, figure out how ARKit worked and make it uh, 
make it come through uh, pretty um, easily into the Unity engine. So you could author AR kit um, uh, experiences without too much hassle within the within the Unity engine and within the Unity editor. What's the process of porting something from Unity into ARKit like? Well, it's not really porting something into Unity. Uh, porting something into it's more like so the Unity ARKit plugin uh, lives as kind of like a platform or, or or build output for your Unity game. So uh, again, similar to VR, uh, what we do with AR is we take the Unity main camera and we basically take the pose of that camera and get it informed by the actual um, device, the AR device. So the AR SDK will give you back a pose of the device and its location in the world. And what we do is just translate that and set it on the camera, which lives within Unity. So you'd create some virtual objects in Unity and have that augment the real camera video that you, this pass-through video that you're getting from the mobile camera. And uh, so what will happen is as you move your uh, mobile camera around, the pose that's that device uh, gives you is actually plugged in into the Unity camera so that the Unity camera moves in the same way. Um, so actually you can see this pretty easily uh, when you uh, implement something called ARKit Remote. Uh, ARKit Remote allows you to connect a device um, uh, which is running ARKit um, and connect it to the Unity editor. And as you move the device, you can see in the Unity editor the movement of the camera that follows that, as well as the video that the camera is giving you, etc. In some ways, and, I, and I've always thought it backwards until now, it sounds like ARKit or sorry, AR development is actually in a way harder than VR development because with VR, you know, you got that single camera and then you control everything in the universe. With AR, it seems like you have to sync everything you have in your universe with the realistic universe, including capturing points to attach things to. So you really have this sort of artificial anchor for AR that VR seems to be able to get away without. Correct. I think VR, I mean, AR development in a sense, is harder, um, but in a sense, it's easier as well because uh, uh, one of the things is, uh, at least for mobile handheld AR, uh, you don't have to deal with a lot of the stuff that we were talking about in the beginning of VR, which is like, you know, the the frame rate and the and the pukiness and uh, <laughs> you know, the, no yeah. motion sickness. Uh, so that is a big. Uh, big advantage that you're not, I mean, a big thing that you don't have to worry about. So there, uh, and the, the virtual, uh, and the other part is you don't have to create a virtual world. A lot of it is just, I mean, you just have to create a small augmentation of the real world. So you already have the real world. You already have your level, essentially. And all you need to do is create the virtual objects that are going to live in that world live in your real world. So in that sense, it's a bit simpler. But it is a bit harder because, again, the believability and the immersiveness are totally dependent on how well you can understand your real world. And currently, with the mobile AR that we have, it's a bit, I mean, the, the immersiveness is not as, um, as good because they haven't really found... I mean, they're doing a lot of the, you know, detection of the real world, but they haven't really, um, maybe there's still a lot more to be done to make it realistic. For example, uh, one of the uh, first things that they do is detect a flat surface, but then, uh, which is like, they say, plane detection. So whenever you go through your world, one of the things that the AR kit and the AR core does is it'll give you a sense of where the flat surfaces are. and the idea behind that is the flat surfaces are where you usually want to put content, uh, virtual content that will actually enhance the world. Um, it's all well and good, except those, those detection of the surfaces are very approximate. So if you have a, a, a round table or uh, you know, an odd-looking shape that's flat, 
it still it doesn't give you a very good representation of that. Um, so you can, for example, put something that's either falling off the edge or falling through part of the table. Or another thing is like it doesn't detect uh, featureless objects. So, for example, if you have a, a white wall or a wall that doesn't have any any uh, texture on it, it's really hard for it to detect it. Partly, obviously, because of the limitations of the uh, of the technology. Things like, well, it doesn't have a depth map so or a depth camera, so it, it has to kind of look at just the movement of the video to try and figure out what things are there or how far they are, etc. Now, ARKit has also added in the, the concept of recognizing a 3D shape, if I remember Correct. correctly. The new, yes. the new OS that's, going, that's, that's in the process of, uh, that will be released. Yes, so ARKit 2.0 adds uh, a few new things from so ar kit started off uh, last year at 1.0 and then um like mid last year around this time frame uh they it got released and then earlier this year they released 1.5 uh or was it it might have been later uh later last year yeah uh, anyhow and then they released the 2.0 beta uh in june uh, with wwdc and the 2.0 beta, um, which is uh, the 2.0, is going to be released soon. But it basically implements this uh, a few new functionalities. Uh, one of the most important ones is, uh, as I said, object recognition. So it basically takes the feature points that you see, and uh, you can basically scan them and figure out all the different feature points in a certain object, and uh, it saves them out, and then it tries to recognize the same feature points again as you scan. And a scene in the future. Uh, and when it does recognize it, it, it tells you, okay, I've recognized this object that you had saved before. So that's, that's the object recognition aspect of it. It also has something called uh, AR world map. And the, uh, the thing that that does is allows you to save, uh, uh, save the sense of what a room looks like like the feature points of a whole room, for example, or a whole location. So you can scan your room or your location, and then you can save that off as an AR world map. And then later on, either you or someone else who comes into the same room uh, can try and uh, relocalize themselves to the same coordinate system as you were before. So this allows you to have things like uh, save some content that you can have uh, other people see in the same place, uh, um, or you can have like you can share it in multiplayer in a multiplayer game, and you could have multiple people looking at the same object from different viewpoints, etc. So uh, yeah, so those kind of things are kind of uh, new, and they're coming up um, uh, in the in the later versions of ARKit and ARCore. Yeah, ARCore does have something similar, and the way they implement it is slightly different, uh, which is. Uh, you can specify, hey, I want to have, uh, the way they implement it is called cloud anchors. And what you can do is you can scan your room and you say, I want to put something over here. I want to put an anchor over here. So it'll, you tell it where the anchor is and um, AR Core automatically kind of decides, oh, this is where I want to save the content. So uh, I, I can just basically, uh, it'll basically send a, an ID to the cloud, which saves all this, uh, all the feature points around this place. And then when someone else uses the same ID, it's kind of like a GUID that is like a really long ID that's globally unique. And um, it, it tells you, okay, this is where this other person placed this content and this is what it looks like kind of thing. So it allows you to do it in a, in a different way. It uses, it uses the cloud instead of having the data saved, you know, locally on the on the machine. Sounds like it sounds like Google is using the Google Maps kind of technology to 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 basically study up a three dimensional representation and and be able to reference that. Uh, yes, somewhat. I think what they're they're probably using similar technology as far as just saving a bunch of feature points that are that they've detected in a room. Uh, but one is doing it in the cloud and one is doing it locally. It looks like that's probably the only difference. Does it do this by estimating coordinates or is it more recognizing a plane 
or a combination of both? It's probably estimating. So it's basically a combination of both in a sense. Uh, you take a, you, it's looking at the feature points. So the feature points are basically in AR, what, what we call feature points are when you take a camera and you move it around, it detects certain uh, features that are unique to that area. So for example, if I have a, I have a camera and I'm moving it on a, on a table, it detects uh, maybe a spot on the table uh, because it's got a different, it's got a pattern on it, for example. And then it'll detect that as a feature point. It says, okay, I know that that is a feature point and I, I can use that uh, movement of that feature point to figure out, uh, uh, in combination with my sensors in the camera, uh, in the device, in combination with the uh, with this feature point movement, I can kind of track where this device is in the world. So it kind of, uh, if you use one or the other, you'll have too much errors, but you kind of cancel the errors out from each other as you use both this, they call it sensor fusion, which is use different sensors to kind of uh, cancel the errors from each other and get a pretty accurate sense of where the device is in the world. So similarly, to that, these feature points can be used for other purposes. So if you take a bunch of features and you say, okay, these features exist in this, in this particular configuration in this room, it's unlikely you'll find the same features in another room, right? So what they do is they say, okay, we've already looked, we're looking for these features. And if we see the same features in the same configuration, we can conclude that that's the same room that we, we were in the beginning. So we'll just take the coordinate system that we had uh, saved with this feature set and uh, say, tell the other device, hey, this is, this is the same, this is the coordinate system you, want, you need to be in. A lot of the AR technology really is seeming to focus on getting that bearing, getting that location, and being able to report enough data that you have the, the solid coordinate system to, to uh, work from in, in your development. Correct. The development continues to seem to be improving that recognition and improving a solid basis of dependability that I hold device here and I am locked into coordinate system. Is this where it seems to be that most of the internal development, AR Kid, AR Core, and all of them are trying to really get those best lock-ins that they can? I think the world tracking is actually pretty accurate. There is, there is some... Uh, issues there that we need to kind of uh, figure out to make it even better. Um, um, for example, like when you lose tracking, uh, it, there are occasions where you lose tracking, etc., because uh, somehow the camera isn't seeing what it needs to see, or like you covered it, or you're moving it too fast. But for the most part, I think the world tracking is pretty much set. I think the pro- uh, the things that we need to solve uh, in AR are things more about environmental understanding, understanding what else is there in the world, right? So uh, the flat surfaces are just like a, uh, a way of doing it right now, but uh, like we don't, that's because we, we are limited by the amount of uh, detection that we have. But if we had, let's say, depth maps or a depth camera, for example, we could have made a, a mesh of the whole room and we could understand much better what this, uh, how you would interact with it, you know, how you'd occlude things behind it, or how you would, you know, interact with uh, physics on the, like, you could throw a ball on the wall and it would bounce back as we'd expect it to. All that kind of stuff is, I think, the next level that we need to figure out. Also, things like UI or um, user interaction, right? So things like hand tracking and gaze tracking. So those kind of things could use an improvement. I think the world tracking is pretty good. And I'm surprised with the the growth of ca- of uh, mobile devices that have multiple cameras on them that they aren't using the two cameras and a two eye system to do that. Yeah, I mean a lot of the. So I think the essence of it is um, when Apple uh, talked about uh, or wanted to put out AR Kit, they wanted it to, to be as ubiquitous as possible. So they wanted to support uh, even the lower-end devices as much as possible. Um, and so they didn't want any like limitation on the amount of cameras and the hardware and stuff like that. Um, so that's one reason. And the other reason is the cameras 
uh, for the dual cameras uh, don't really give you, they're not the same kind of, they're not two yeah. same cameras. So they're not like, they don't give you the real stereo effect. Yeah, one is a one's a deeper FOV. So basically, it gives you it gives you different views on the world, and you can basically use them to sort of figure out the depth. But it's not a depth camera, so it doesn't give you as much of an advantage as you would with a depth camera, um, with a true depth camera. Uh, uh, the iPhone 10 does have a depth camera, but it's facing the wrong way, it's facing towards you. <laughs> But if you look at the face tracking, um, face tracking on iPhone 10, that's part of ARKit as well. They allow you to do a lot of interesting things, like it gives you a full mesh of your face, and you can start painting stuff on your face, and you can do all kinds of interesting, uh, neat things with your face tracking. You can detect expressions on your face and uh, have a virtual character, you know, copy your expressions, that kind of stuff. So at Unite Berlin, they showed uh, something that's where. You'd take, you'd hold a phone, an iPhone 10, and you'd make some expressions, and there'd be a, a girl in uh, in in the Unity editor that would basically just uh, rendered in really high high definition, that would basically follow your expressions and you know say look the exact same way as you did. Uh, very cheap motion uh, facial motion capture studio. I think that's what was really exciting when I saw that at Unite. I think that really got me interested in AR, just certainly for facial rigging, animations, and stuff like that. The potential was, yeah, rather than spending thousands on motion cap capture and rigging, you know, just to be able to do a quick facial rig and have animations coming off straight from your phone was fantastic of course like i can add in as a as a as a 10 owner and also the owner of a beard that makes me look like santa claus i caused the 10 no end of headache trying to find the bottom half of the face so i i uh, it's it's interesting because i i really do appreciate what i'm seeing in the mesh and the concept of using that from a mocap point of view but you do begin to see the limitations of if it cannot generate that mesh, the things that it will fight against. But yeah. I, I agree, and I, I, I expect that that mesh will get more and more detailed with each rev just because of the fact that there's just so much capability in using that detailed information. Correct. I think there is also, I mean, there's lots of examples of how useful it could be. Uh, Currently, I don't think you can do like a production quality uh, facial motion capture uh, with this technology, but you can still do kind of like a um, a prototype so that people can see what you know your character would look like before you do the full you know uh, facial motion capture. Um, but I think yeah, uh, the technology is going to get better, and you, I mean, it, it already has certain things that have gotten better. They're starting to provide more. Um, so, so one of the things they added in ARKit 2.0 was the tongue out expression. So if you stick your tongue out, it basically detects that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I often kid about that, but I'm also pleased that the other thing they added was the, the eye movement. Yes. So that's also very important. The left right of the eyes, which I, I felt was uh, really important there to have that that ability to track eye gestures, which again, as we talked about in the VR section, tracking eye motion and eye gestures will become much more helpful in in the usage of these products. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I mean, I, I could think of uh, just using the, uh, like one of the examples I did in the, uh, in the plugin for ARKit 2.0 was uh, I had these arrows in my eyes and as I moved my eyes, the arrows would move with them kind of thing. So that was that was kind of a bit creepy, but it was a very good, very good uh, demonstration of the example. Uh, but uh, essentially, I think uh, a lot of these technologies, again, some of these technologies, uh, for example, the stuff that we were talking about for uh, face tracking uh, only exists on ARKit right now and only on iPhone 10. Uh, but, you know, the world tracking stuff exists on all the iPhone 6S upwards. Uh, and for AR Core, more and more uh, of the devices are showing up. Uh, more and more of the Android devices are showing up in the AR Core um, list of devices that they support. So um, 
I mean, I think if we're looking at the number of people that are going to be using AR, uh, I think that's growing quite uh, fast. And I think what we need to do is provide. Um, so one of the things that we wanted to do at Unity also is provide like a, a multi-platform solution for these kind of devices. So one of the things that we kind of started looking at uh, earlier this year, um, actually late last year and earlier this year, was uh, to make a, a multi-platform solution so that you could just write your AR experience once in Unity and have it work on both AR Core as well as AR Kit. So we've, we've looked at, uh, basically, we've created something called AR Foundation, which is like a higher level um, a higher level framework that sits on top of our um, AR subsystems, the XR SDK, uh, and the AR subsystems provide, you know, like the data that the AR uh, kit and AR core uh, give you. So, for example, we'd have a plane subsystem which provides all the planes that they've detected, or we'd have a session subsystem that takes advantage of, or a reference point subsystem. So all these are exposed at the AR foundation level uh, as a, you know similar kind of sets of providers. So we can just use a higher level construct in the AR foundation um, to kind of provide a multi-platform way of accessing these sub, uh, subsystem data. When you use multi-platform, do you find that there are any limitations? I know a lot of mobile developers dislike React Native because you're kind of coding to the lowest common denominator. Do you find anything like that when you're working with foundations? Yes. So AR Foundation uh, is is pretty new. So in that sense, the, the stuff that we started off first with was just the, the basic like AR kit uh, 1.0 level or 1.5 level uh, sorts of stuff. So uh, the, the planes, the, the sets of data is very, uh, is very common across AR kit and AR core at that level, at the basic level. But as you get more advanced, uh, what we were talking about earlier, for example, the way AR kit does uh, sharing and persistence with AR world map is different from the way AR core would do it with cloud anchors. So something of that nature uh, would be different uh, by by definition, the way you know you would use it. But then uh, part of it is also to try and unify these kind of different sets of data in the at the foundation framework level. So at the foundation framework level, as long as the construct is high high level enough, then you don't have to worry about what the lower level construct are. So for example, I want to say, I just want to share an experience with some other person. I don't care how you do it in the, at the low level. I just want to do this at this level. So, so I guess it de- just depends on how much of a, how much of a abstraction you have, right? So if you want to use a specific, specific uh, AR SDK feature, it might be hard if you know, if there, for example, there is no support for it in AR Foundation. So right now, AR Foundation is has only the basic uh, AR SDK functionality. So if you wanted to do some of the more advanced stuff like AR Kit 2.0 or uh, AR Core uh, latest version uh, kind of features, then you'd probably have to use their particular plugin. Uh, but the aim is for us to implement more and more of this functionality within this uh, AR subsystem so that AR Foundation has access to that. And uh, that is that is kind of like, obviously, is a challenge. As you said before, the challenge because we need to figure out a way that makes sense for both these different um, AR subsystems to work. Uh, the, the ever-popular holy grail of finding multi-platform programming that doesn't limit you in the long run. Yeah, that's, that's going to be tough. We definitely are going to have to meet back in four years to talk about how <laughs> these technologies have all changed. This is, this is such a wonderful place to, to get in because if you have 
ideas of things that no one else has done. There's just so much untapped. I, I, I feel like right now we're at a Hoover Dam that has one brick that has come out. And at some point, <laughs> everything is going to be coming out and it's going to be nonstop. I mean, the number of books that are appearing from month to month in the fields of VR, AR, in the fields of Unity are unbelievable. You go three, five months, there'll be another book on AR, VR for Unity, and people will go after that kind of stuff. So you just will not run out of the, the stuff to research this. Guys, I really want to thank everybody. This episode probably will have run long. We probably will be making this a 50-minute episode. But guys, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate all the information, and there will probably be much to revisit really, really soon. Guys, thanks again. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Ray. Uh, thank you, Jay. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Drew and Jay. <laughs> the next show that will be coming up after this one, uh, we're going to be jumping really back hard into Android technologies because we, we do not strictly do iOS here anymore, and that'll be a fun show as well. But that's going to wrap it up for Episode 7. We go back to the Emerald Castle. Back to you, Ray. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.